This is the Ben Ryan Podcast. Joe DeSena is a force of nature. I first became aware of Joe through podcasts like The Tim Ferriss Show and Rich Roll, and I decided to reach out. Joe's stories in those conversations are about starting out with very little and how to help drive change to 100 million people's lives, pushed him on to found Spartan, which now has over 250 races in over 42 countries. And with his recent acquisition of Tough Mudder, well, those stats are only going up. We only scratched the surface in this episode around his early years growing up and his pool cleaning business where his first clients were mob bosses. And I'd advise you to check out those aforementioned podcasts for more details on that part of his life. But in this conversation, we focus on mindset different ways to train, breaking bad habits, and even the reasons behind why he ran up Scottish Glens with weights and a bagpiper trailing behind him. We start though with a story about Fiji and his first encounter with rugby, probably why one of the world's busiest and energetic people agreed to have this fantastic chat. When I was doing the Eco Challenge through Fiji, I got dysentery and giardia. And I got really, really sick. I lost... uh, 32 pounds over, you know, eight, nine days. And um, I ended up in a village in the interior of Fiji, no cars, you know, you know better than anybody, no cars, no roads. And I don't know, it cost them a dollar or two to run the generator. And they, they kind of nursed me back to where I could continue in the race in this hut. <laughs> and the room was spinning and I was dehydrated, it was a mess. And on the wall, was a poster of rugby, something rugby. And I never played rugby. I didn't know anything about it. And I was so thrilled that they did what they did and they had no money to do what they did or like that I, I said, you know, what can I do for you? And they didn't have any rugby equipment. So when I got back to New York, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, I found somebody who ran an internet rugby business or whatever. And I, bought like, I don't know how many kits and I shipped them over and I never heard anything. And about a year later, literally 12, 14 months later, I got a message and the message was from a reporter in Suva, capital of Fiji. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. One of the rainiest places on the planet. Yeah. And the reporter said, look, Mr. DeSena, I want you to know it took a long time but we got the package to the village <laughs> and they want to say thank you. So that's my connection to Fiji and rugby. Oh man, they would have been so happy to get brand new kit. I've, I mean, I've been in villages where they're literally worried about whether they're going to get their next meal, but they will save up to make sure they've got kit to play in a tournament because they've got so much pride around around the village. So that's a very cool story. Um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me though that, you know, Fijians... Um, they're so welcoming and uh, they'll do anything for you and they wouldn't have expected that back. It's that trait of Fijians, they live in the present. They just don't, um, they don't think too far in the future, which can be a problem if, uh, you know, I was with some boys in, the, in a buffet in the hotel, you know, they, they, they'll just, they'll clean that buffet out if you're not careful and they don't save. But that ability to stay in the present just means that as an athlete, you know, they're this phenomenal, you know, and they, and they, you know, they'll do anything for you. And uh, so, so that's, a, that's a pretty cool story to get things going. I appreciate you telling me that. And so you, you coached the Rugby Sevens team to um, 
the highest honor yeah yeah that's that's that i guess i came i i came when um when the team were um had bank gone bankrupt and um had no money and and were in a low point but it's the national sport and over those three years uh yeah we went we turned it into double world champions and then won fiji's first ever olympic medal a gold one at, at, at rio so yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot easier to get a team to gold when they're six foot five, hundred and twenty kilograms, and they can run like the wind and have this amazing uh, teamship, you know, because they, they they all grew up in the village. So I didn't need to take them to an army camp for the week to to learn about culture and team like I would have done with England. You know, that they, they they have this expression "vela mani," it means work together, you know, and love each other, and it bound everything we did over those few years and. And some of the stuff actually, like one of the other things that resonated with me was the way that we trained. So a lot of the boys growing up, they would, you know, from the age of 12 or 13, they'd be in the fields chopping sugar cane. So they'd have that functional strength and then they'd have a little sleep in the field waiting for the trucks to come. And then in the evening, they'd pile the, the sugar cane onto the trucks. And so when you look at some of these guys, they didn't look very big, but they had this kind of farmer strength. And so we'd never, you know, when I, I used to coach England as well and... If you got the two teams in the gym, England would just kill them in the gym, you know, on the traditional stuff. But on the field, it was the opposite. They were like men against boys and these guys could do all these crazy things. And we would train functionally as well. So we'd go up sand dunes, you know, 200 meter sand dunes and we'd have sandbags or we'd carry crates of water. And so the way that you do things with Spartan, like, I just love it. So when, when you train a team, what is under your purview? What do you focus on? The, the strength training, the conditioning, everything? For sevens, is for it, the athletes that you have to, to um, kind of get them to their, their peak, it's a combination of, of different types of fitness, really, because they play in a tournament, they'll play six games, each game's 14 minutes. You'll have to recover and then get yourself back up for each game. They cover about 2K in each game. Um, they reach up to about you know 35 kilometers an hour, the, the quick guys, and then there's lots of repetition, you know, a lot of contact. So you know, the, effectively, if we were doing a fitness session for rugby, it would be a lot of kind of 50 to 150 meter repetitive sprints with some burpees thrown in, some wrestling, some down and ups, and you'd do that as a good way to try and replicate what they were going to do in, in games. So. Again, it kind of, you know, some of the stuff that I've seen in the trifecta or the different stuff you do, you know, I've seen you doing on video, seen you doing burpees in departure lounges. So, you know, I can I can see that you can understand how that gets people fit fast and without any real equipment. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, very, um, burpees are powerful and they're quick. Um, now I've been, we've been very involved in wrestling, which is, you know, shorter duration. I don't know if it's more intense than rugby. I don't, would, would you say rugby or wrestling is more intense? It's a good question because I watched um, I watched the video of um, your man Jake qualify for the for the Olympics of wrestling because wrestling's not big in the UK particularly like taekwondo and 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 some of the other martial arts you know they they do really well at the Olympics but we do some wrestling and it drains you so fast in rugby so if you were to do some repetitive sprints but then you suddenly get into a tussle for the ball for twenty seconds you just see some players just deplete their energy so quickly that it takes them some time then to get back into the game to be able to effect, be effective. So, yeah, we do a lot of grappling as well because it just drains you so quickly. I don't think there's many kind of different things that we've used that can just take that energy away so fast, you know. Drain the battery. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, 
I also I also saw the documentary you did recently with Carl Fussman, who for UK listeners is um, you know a famous writer in New York and has a great podcast called The Big Question. And you you did the um, you did the documentary him exit strategy and trying to convince this guy that who perhaps uh, be fair to say he hadn't got a history of active lifestyle and uh, healthy eating, and you managed to get him to do the trifecta in what? How long did it take him? About a year and a half from start to finish. It was over a year. It was like. It would have been easier to get a horse on the moon than get him to focus on fitness. And the crazy story about him, about Cal, is um, he met Jack LaLanne. You might not know Jack LaLanne, a 1950s super fitness freak in the U.S. And Jack LaLanne actually put him through a program like I did years ago. And like, like most people, you know, he did it while he was being paid attention to and focused on it and then went off the rails. And you know, the common narrative with everybody, but especially him, was like, why? Why do I need to push so hard? Why do I, why can't I have some ice cream? Why, I remember we were sitting with Larry King, me, him, and Larry King, late night talk show host, you know, and at this point, Larry, I don't know, late 70s, 80, matter of fact, he's in the documentary, I think, Larry. Yeah, he is, he is. He was uh, chucking sugar on nearly everything, right? He was chucking sugar on everything, and, he, and I remember he, he turned to me. I don't know if this was in the film or not, and he's like, "Why again? Why? Why? Like I, I don't need to do any of that." And Larry's, you don't make it very long on the planet if you if you don't take care of yourself. And I guess that's the reason why it was called Exit Strategy, right? Because you kind of talked about how you know how do you want to go out? Do you want to spend your last few months in in a hospital ward, or do you want to have a long and and fruitful life? I think you want you want a health span. You don't want a lifespan. You want a health span. You want to be healthy from the moment you're born to the moment you're dead. And, and, um, you know, I watched my dad in and out of hospitals for 30 years. And that's not a way to go. So, look, we can't avoid some of us get hit by cars in a bad car accident. Shit happens in life. But the things we can avoid um, that we can take control of is diet and exercise. Yeah, no, I... I I get it. And, I, you know, I, heard, I read about your car accident and how that kind of drove you to some changes, really, about getting into the, the endurance stuff. And there's also a couple of things in my head that, that you've said that resonate with me. Nothing good happens after 11 o'clock at night. Um, that's, <laughs> that's something I need to tell a few of my mates. Um, and well, one thing about rugby, you know, when I, I moved to Asia, you'll appreciate this. Um, and I was so enamored with the sport. I had that little connection from PG. And um, I want my kids to be tough badasses, my, the girls and boys. So we're going to play rugby, you know, and it felt, I felt more intelligent actually than, you know, U.S. football. Like rugby just for, for an American, I don't know, you just feel like international, it feels cool. So the kids did it. And I went on, um, as many parents do, we went on a weekend tour with some matches in Hong Kong and, and Malaysia. And I went with the dads. And I never saw people drink so much beer. It was, and it turned me off a little bit because I was like, like there were moments where the dad, a dad would have a beer in his hand and then two more beers opened, ready to go in his, like, why? There's no need for it. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of, I guess, the history of, of rugby that it was always amateur, you know, it was quite a middle-class sport and that, that, the French call it the third half, you know, is just as important as the first two halves that are on the field. But we, we went into professionalism in kind of the mid-90s. And so at the top end, that's changed. But it, it definitely, res I mean, and the Hong Kong Sevens is like the, the blue ribbon event of international sevens. That's a sellout. 
tickets sell out in five five minutes and there's one stand called the south stand that is unreserved so you queue to get in and it's it's just as you warm up you can warm up on the far end and as you're jogging to about halfway so you're 50 meters away you start to smell the booze everything as you get closer to and and it's just bedlam but um yeah i'm not a subscriber uh, you know in in that but it's ingrained in 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 part of the uh you know a large part of the rugby society joe we gotta we gotta we gotta fix that and and uh you know we put a race on at twickenham did you do the stairs up and down all the stairs at the twickenham yeah and you should be at that event um I'd love to because um, I used to do that with the Sevens team when I coached them in 2006, 2007. We'd do that at the stadium so that we kind of wanted to, well, A, use our natural surroundings and also like we're going to work hard in the place that we were going to then entertain. You know, we wanted to put that work in. And actually, weirdly, I, I do some work with the French team. They like that idea and they've been running up and down the Eiffel Tower. They've had it specially opened in the mornings for them. It's, uh, so you need, to get, you need to get a race on the Eiffel Tower. That would be cool. We need to get a race in the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, yeah. I've done the Empire State Building um, Trade Center before they got they got uh, blown up. But um, I love stairs. I, you know, stairs, burpee, stairs are amazing, right, for getting you in shape. Yeah, I mean, we didn't. I mean, in Fiji, like there weren't many high story buildings, you know, so we we didn't have that to do. Um, so we'd use the sand dunes because you get fit fast and it's dead easy as a coach because you're telling them to get up to the top and if they stop, they just fall further down the sand, right? And it protects their joints. So, um, yeah, that's that's. If you if I can reverse back a, a, a little bit, Joe, if you don't mind, when we talked about the why, when you were saying about, about Larry King, you know, why you're doing it, is your why linked into growing up in Queens and and that journey? Yeah, my my mom in the 1970s, the early 70s, she got into yoga and health food. She became obsessed with uh, being healthy and, and and pushing limits on a new way, meditating, vegan. Um, was not cool at the time as her son and my sister. We thought she was nuts, um, very bohemian, crunchy. We didn't want any part of it. But we had grown up in a, in a neighborhood that was riddled with um, organized crime and pizza and cannolis and just garbage food and garbage lifestyle. And she turned out to be right. So she pushed it, pushed it, pushed it. I pushed back in the mid 90s. I was on Wall Street. I was, I was making a living and uh, getting paid more than I should and feeling eat, eating more than I should. And I went back to what she preached. I, I started doing some yoga. I started running stairs in my building every day and um, fell in love with this stuff and just felt alive. And this is the way an animal supposed to live. And so I just, um, I, I was so transformed myself and I saw how many people my mother transformed that I wanted to do this on a large scale. And so I attempted, you know, in 2000, 2001 to start this thing up and it just was a disaster for 10 years. I lost money, no one wanted to do it. I used to have to lie to people and say, hey, come to a barbecue this weekend. They didn't know they were the ones being barbecued. And, um, <laughs> and then eventually in 2010, it, it worked. And I guess those guys that got barbecued at the end of it, you know, they, they were quite happy that you, you pushed them to the, I guess, to, to, to get going, to take that first step. I had two, when you asked that just now, I had two very, very, very overweight guys that I barbecued one weekend. <laughs> I mean, extremely overweight. And I said, oh, guys, we got to carry this barbecue to the top of the mountain. And they played along and, oh, it's a little further, it's a little further. Well, 13 miles later, okay, everybody else had done the course and I couldn't find them. And I got on a four-wheeler and I'm way out in the woods 
And sure enough, they were at the 13 mile mark, face first in the dirt, <laughs> laying there. Didn't matter to die. Yeah. And I had to load them up on a, on a trailer and, uh, and get them out. But, um, but again, it transformed their lives, right? They got to see another path, another way. So uh, not everybody sticks with it, but you gotta at least show them that there's another way to live. Has Carl Fussman stuck with it? Was he slipped? You know, about two weeks ago, he called me and he said, hey, I just want you to know you were right. And he hung up. Because <laughs> <laughs> he liked his ice cream. Um, and, I, and I also read something once about, about how they do that, um, that self-control experiment where, you know, you give a kid some, some chocolate and, or you can get them to wait 15 minutes and they get a couple of lumps. And you, you did it with your son, Jack, right? With the ice cream. I did it with Jack. Do you want the ice cream now? Or if you wait, you get two two scoops. And he was, I don't know, five years old, six years old. And he, and he turned to me and he said, we were about three and a half minutes in. And I thought, gee, if he goes for the ice cream, this is going to mean that I have a son that doesn't, you know, he can't control himself, right? He, he goes for the short, the shortcuts. And yeah, so, so he turns to me and he says, dad, how long do I have to wait to get 15 scoops? <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, that's the greatest answer ever, right? Yeah. Because all of us in life should be playing for 15 scoops. And so are we going to be short-term minded and not be able to delay gratification or are we going to go for the long-term and um, one scoop or 15, your choice. Hey, he's a bright kid. I mean, he's destined for greatness, I think, based upon that simple story. Um, and, and another thing that, you, that, that um, I think interests me is that, that decision on when it gets tough mentally where you take yourself, you know, because that's often, again, you can get people in the door and start, but that we talk about in Fiji, we'd have this little analogy where we'd have a devil on our shoulder. So if the, if it was getting into some hard training or in, even in the games and you see one of the lads maybe has had a tackle and he stayed on the floor for a couple of seconds because he thinks it won't make any difference. He'll just get a shout across and tell him to, you know, in Fiji to wipe that devil off his shoulder and give him that stuff. How, how do you how do you approach that either personally or with the people that you, you work with when they get into that point where, you know, your body's screaming and your head's telling you, take a rest? I tell my kids, you know, your body can trick your mind and your mind can trick your body. So if your mind is is the weak link in that moment, uh, you got to smile. You got to fake it. You got to stand up. You got to fight through it. And if your body's okay, but your mind is, and, and you got you to push through, you got to put one foot in front of the other. So there's always going to be, look, the number one motivator for a human being, for our species, is the avoidance of discomfort. It's the number one thing that motivates us. And, and it does so, so that we survive on the planet for millions of years. We don't fall off cliffs. We don't end up frozen in the snow. Like we avoid discomfort, uncomfortable, difficult, challenging situations. Um, if you don't believe me, watch what happens tomorrow morning. Promise yourself that you're going to do 20 burpees. So you're going to go for one mile run, something easy. You'll find yourself first thing in the morning, checking your emails, uh, making your coffee, doing all kinds of things that are artificially putting off the thing you're supposed to be doing to avoid the discomfort. And so if you can understand that that's what your body is designed to do, you got to flip it on its head. You got to get it to a point. This is what I did. I didn't even know I was doing it throughout all my years. You got to get it to a point where it's more uncomfortable to not do the thing. It's more uncomfortable when your coach says, Hey, I noticed you were laying down 
um, many uh, times uh, uh, with tackles, spent, you know, spending an extra two or three seconds on the, on the, what do you guys call it, a field or, or you call it a... Yeah, yeah, field, a pitch, yeah. Pitch was the word I was looking for. Um, and so that becomes more uncomfortable. I don't want my coach saying that about, right? You got to find that trigger, that thing. Uh, for me, I don't want to go public with something and then not deliver. I don't want to be known as the guy with all the energy. I don't want to, right? And so I just make it, it's more uncomfortable for me to not do the workout. My day is worse if I don't do it because I flipped it on its head. And, and um, I've made danger, I've made uncomfortable and danger uh, the, the act of not doing it. I'll tell you a story. I was in um, Scotland and we were putting on a race in Scotland. We were out there, we rented a, a piece of land with a castle, a, a legit castle. And I got there the day before and it was like misty rain and midges. And I noticed that we had these tent weights. These, uh, they look like dumbbells that the tents are strapped to. And I looked at them and my mind said, oh, you don't want to do that. You don't want to, you don't want to carry those out up that hill, right? And as soon as my mind did that, again, I tricked myself over all these years. No, Joe, it would be more uncomfortable to not do it, right? Your reputation will be worse if you don't do it. You have to do it. And so I went and found a um, bagpiper and I convinced them, I paid them to follow me on the course. And I said, I'm going to carry these two weights and I'm going to do the whole course, but I want you blowing the bagpipes the whole time because I thought that would be unbelievable. And so I turned a really shitty idea, a really shitty thing carrying two 50 pound dumbbells through a Spartan race um, into an experience that I'm going to remember the rest of my life. Who gets to go in Scotland through the mountains, right? With a bagpipe, like it was unbelievable. I was, for me, it was my Normandy beachhead moment, you know, where I survived. Not to take away anything from the guys um, that were there, but, but anyway, I don't know if I'm making sense. No, no, you're making a lot of sense because for me, my head goes straight to where I've had athletes that don't necessarily see the benefit of what you're doing with them, whether it's, I mean, whether it's running up sand dunes at five in the morning or, or having hard training sessions or I took the Fijian team off sugar totally like six months before and it that was difficult you know it was like getting getting someone off crack for the first few days and and we got them off it and then eventually when they started to see the benefits and I was going to put some more carbohydrates into them going into the Olympics in the Olympic Village um, which is another story because that blows my mind how long the queues are at McDonald's in the Olympic Village and these are international athletes and some you know day two and they can't have finished their competition it just blew my mind but we'd get to the point where we could introduce some more to give them some so, some better energy and they just said they don't want to do that you know they were happy on the diet that they'd got to and they were high protein almost zero carbs which is very different for what you'd expect for an athlete but the Fijians they it directed well to it but if you don't connect it and they don't understand why that what's a benefit then that's where I, I see the lack of buy-in but the difference between perhaps what I would do with an elite athlete is that mentally I'm happy to break them but physically, I've got to get that art and science right. I've got to get them to the edge, but I can't break them because I need them to, to be at their top end physically the following day. For, for you guys with Spartan, you probably can break them a little bit physically, right? Yeah, we break, we break people down. You know, we do what the military does. The military stretches the rubber band to the point where it's just about to break, and then you retreat a little bit. And we stretch a little further, and we retreat a little bit. And so you've always got, um, I know this from my own experience, you've always got eight more days in you. You know, I can't take one more step. You have eight more days of steps to take. Um, 
So you can go a lot further than you think you can. My job is to help you get there. My best example were children last summer. I, I put on Camp Spartan. You could look it up on YouTube. It's pretty funny. I don't know. I had 20, 30 kids, including my own, eight years old, up to 15 years old. And I bet you there's been no Fijian in your history, no rugby player, no wrestler, nobody that did the volume of work that I made these kids do on a daily basis. And the ice cold river plunges and carrying rocks up the mountain and hikes and buddy carries and fighting. We would have wrestling matches, um, 14, 16, 17 hours a day. Uh, my kids did three tours, five weeks straight. We ended it with um, up and down the mountain 10 times. It's a mile up and a mile down, mile up and a mile down. I think it's a 14 hour ordeal. Each time they go up, they've got to climb uh, a rope five times in the woods. And each time they come down, they got to climb it five times in the woods. So, oh my God, you know, a hundred rope climbs, 20 miles of hiking, 20,000 feet of elevation gain. And that's the last day. That's crazy. Yeah. Five weeks. I mean, if you, if you ever get tight, you resonate again with some of, there's a school in, in Fiji and Levuka. It's the old capital. It's in, on a tiny little island and it's very old school and Spartan really, you know, the dorms and everything else. And every year each age group has to then has to climb up to the mountain and back, you know, and they just, they just do it. There's no teachers going up with them. They've got to get up. They've got to get down. It's kind of a rite of passage that they've got to do every year, but it seems to, you know, it's disappeared in modern society that willingness just to push beyond what you think's capable, right? Yeah, yeah, we used to have rites of passages in, in most cultures, but we took it away. And I guess in some ways, Spartan and Tough Mudder and some of the trail races we put on, they're, they're a rite of passage. Um, if I had my way and I could convince the U.S. government, what I would do is I would do, a, I would do something like Israel does. I would do a one-year military service um, that was really focused on physical readiness, physical and mental readiness. Um, and, you know, maybe uh, a lot of people don't want to do four years or five years, but give, make, make everybody do one year, just one year of the hardest, most challenging shit uh, you could throw at them. Because I think it makes, you and I both agree, it makes better human beings. 100%, yeah, and it just changes, shifts their mindset to, to what's possible, makes you more resilient. Um, and, uh, and, and talk, you know, so, so you, and you bought Tough Mudder um, just before lockdown. So you've, you've now got the two of them, but it all began with, up in Vermont, was it the death race that you started with, what, a dozen people to begin with? Do, do you mind just tell, explaining to the listeners a little bit more about the death race? Um, because, you know, that's really where you've began, I guess, the, the Spartan journey. The death race would be like rugby sevens. If, if, you, if they had a rugby sevens tournament that went 72 hours straight, <laughs> that would be the death race. You know, no breaks. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong. Uh, I lie to you, we, we cheat you, we throw everything at you that you don't want to hear at that particular moment, and we break you. And those people that can somehow hold it together, uh, just like a business person does or a mom does when everything's going wrong, right? Or, or the military does when bullets are flying, or an athlete does on the field when they're down um, so much in that game that it doesn't look possible they can win, but somehow they turn around. Tom Brady, sorry to use my, I don't know, I don't know very many rugby. No, 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 like everyone's well aware of Tom Brady over here. He's, you know, he spans the globe really in his notoriety. So, so um, that's what we do. That's what we, we uncover at the death race. It's not for everybody. We only take 300 athletes a year. 
It's on the farm where this all started in Vermont on our farm. And now, now we even do kids and most parents don't want it. Most parents include, look, I'm a parent, I've got four children. And you know, what happens is you think because of our legacy hardwiring, hard we want to protect our kids from the kind of stuff you and I are describing, but actually we should be pushing our kids to do it. And so it's awesome when adults figure it out and show up to the death race, they're like, you know, I need more of a challenge in my life. I need to know who I am. I need to know how far I can go, how I will act under duress. And that's, that's what that event does. And do you think, do you think the kids just, just the, their brains just are more open to, to doing all of this stuff? And you think it can, you know, we get into, get into everyone a little bit earlier in their life. We've got more chance of affecting this sedentary lifestyle that's creeping in everywhere, you know, particularly in the US and the UK, you know, obesity levels are going through the roof at the moment. And, and from, you know, as a teacher, you know, an ex-teacher looking at kids in the classroom, you know, they've got, the, their size has changed, you know, over the, over the decade. And a lot of it is their inability and their, their desire to want to do exercise and, and understand how to eat right. It's a tidal wave. It's not even creeping in. It's a tidal wave everywhere. This, this um, complacency, let's call it, right? complacency kills. Um, I think kids are definitely more resilient. I mean, think of the way a kid enters the earth. It's a pretty rugged situation, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and they cry and they can't, like, they, kids are pretty resilient. They're all, like, we're all wired to be tough and rugged. And then we learn helplessness based on the people around us, um, you know, feeding us on demand and, 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 comforting us when we cry a little bit and like they teach us helplessness. And so all you got to do is get rid of the phone, get rid of mommy and daddy. And the kid, the kid becomes pretty rugged pretty quickly. And do you think the equivalent then of somebody signing up for Spartan and obviously, you know, the extreme is the death race, but you can, you can start and like, I, I you know, a, st a stadium session would be one of them, I guess. Um, like the ones you did at Twickenham and one you did at Dodgers Stadium when you can go all the way through and do the trifectas. And I've I've seen some, you know, some people that have got some serious disabilities overcome all of that to get through what you do. What would you say is the biggest difference you hear and the feedback? Because I'm sure you get tons of emails about people thanking you uh, for putting them through hell, which is a, a strange juxtaposition. But what would you say is the biggest difference between people when they start and when they finish? I think they, they get to know who they are. They feel good. I mean, it blows out all the pipes and, you, and, and you're, when you're breathing heavy and you're sweating and you're like, oh my God, this feels, I feel alive. I think the community is incredible. There's 10 million of us around the world. So you feel like you're part of a community. It's really a modern day church in some ways. And then, and then you've got a reason to train, to wake up, to stay focused. You've got a reason to eat healthy and eat more broccoli. Um, when you don't have that date on the calendar and you're not part of a community where people are holding each other accountable, it's hard to do it, as we've said, you and I. So I think once you're in it and you get sucked into this vortex, you start living like a Spartan and you don't even know how it happened. Do you think post-COVID you'll see a surge where people are kind of wanting to test themselves more, that they've had this, this kind of this long time of reflection? We're calling it the Roaring Spartans, like the Roaring <laughs> Well, that's a much better uh, way to, to take on life rather than... Uh, do the Roaring Twenties job and uh, whatever they think people are going to do now. Yeah, no, I think I, people are coming back and all our all our signals and all our signs are people are coming back strong. Yeah, and have you got any plans to expand it to any anything else beyond what you're currently doing, do you think? Well, we're focused on trail. We're focused on, um, on fitness, functional fitness. We got something called DECA, 
we're focused on kids, obviously. Merchandise, we've got really unbelievable nutrition products, very simplistic nutrition products that I can't believe somebody didn't figure out before us. Um, a hydration pill that all your rugby players should be taking. It lasts five to six hours in the stomach, so it's unbelievable. You don't have to, I sound like a late night salesman, but I'm just telling you this stuff's unbelievable. Uh, I got an energy pill that uh, comes off the mountains in Sparta. So, you know, we're, we're playing around with some other cool things that are all tied together to what we do. There's also like, obviously, I always like the listeners to, to have some takeaways and you've already given a few about, you know, it sounds so simple, but people don't always reflect and think about early night and early up about how you would, you, you don't, you're kind of intermittent fasting, but you put a, a window, right? When you would eat. And why do you do that? Is that just going back to, well, I'll let you answer that. Yeah, well, I, I know that your stomach needs a break. We got to digest food. And so um, for me, uh, the perfect window is like between nine and six p.m., nine and five p.m. It always seems to slip into six, six thirty. But but um, some people uh, eat go noon to eight or nine p.m. The problem I have with that is you don't want to go to bed on a full stomach. So so um, the earlier you could finish dinner, even though that's difficult socially, the better. I guess we could we could finish off then with just one of the things that I found interesting is the questions you ask yourself sometimes when you get um, when things get tough. You know, there was three. If you knew you were going to fail anyway, is one of the questions that you ask. If you had all the money in the world, you know, what would your what would your actions do? And if it was your last day on earth, is there any reason why do you do those whenever things get tough? Are they the sort of questions that you'll internally ask yourself to kind of make sure that Joe's on on target and where he wants to get to? Yeah, I ask those questions and I always say to myself, I could be dead. You know, how's your day? I'm alive. I mean, it could be worse. It could certainly be worse, although I would also imagine some of his competitors on the death race might feel they are closer to the pearly gates than they would like at certain points. I got a lot from Joe and I left his chat feeling uplifted, even if we talk primarily about pain and working hard. His races and events may be full of all sorts of physical activities to overcome, but this, well, this is all about the head. Changing behavior, making better decisions, and breaking bad habits. The more I listen to different voices that give a slightly different view on this, the more you realize that nearly everything you can do to help your physical and mental well-being is in your own control. Asking yourself, those little internal questions can make for better decisions and once those change how you feel then they do take a firmer hold on your routines. James Clear's book Atomic Habits is a great read for understanding this more but Joe quite literally doesn't sugarcoat any of his messaging and I for one loved his straight talking and the way he's grabbed what he believes in and changed so many lives for the better. We mentioned a lot of resources that we've made sure are in the links on the show notes and you can find those at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast. Joe can be found on social media at Real Joe DeSena on Instagram where you can follow him and his crusade to change the world. He's also releasing a new book in December, 10 Rules for Resilience. So pre-orders are available for that and it's also a very good excuse to get him on for a part two. If you haven't already, then a review would also be brilliant. It makes a big difference to get more people listening to these conversations. So if you fancy helping out, then that would be really appreciated. You can find all the shows on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. This has been the Ben Ryan Podcast. Thanks for listening, and I really look forward to bringing you another great show next Wednesday. <laughs>